Section 10, Memory, Part 1, of the Analysis of Mind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Jenkins. The Analysis of Mind by Bertrand Russell. Lecture 9, Part 1, Memory. Memory, which we are to consider today, introduces us to knowledge in one of its forms. The analysis of knowledge will occupy us until the end of the thirteenth lecture, and is the most difficult part of our whole enterprise. I do not myself believe that the analysis of knowledge can be effected entirely by means of purely external observation, such as behaviorists employ. I shall discuss this question in later lectures. In the present lecture, I shall attempt the analysis of memory knowledge, both as an introduction to the problem of knowledge in general, and because memory, in some form, is presupposed in almost all other knowledge. Sensation, we decided, is not a form of knowledge. It might, however, have been expected that we should begin our discussion of knowledge with perception, i.e., with that integral experience of things in the environment out of which sensation is extracted by psychological analysis. What is called perception differs from sensation by the fact that the sensational ingredients bring up habitual associates, images and expectations of their usual correlates, all of which are subjectively indistinguishable from the sensation. The fact of past experience is essential in producing this filling out of sensation but not the recollection of past experience. The non-sensational elements in perception can be wholly explained as the result of habit produced by frequent correlations. Perception, according to our definition in Lecture 7, is no more a form of knowledge than sensation is, except insofar as it involves expectations. The purely psychological problems which it raises are not very difficult, though they have sometimes been rendered artificially obscure by unwillingness to admit the fallibility of the non-sensational elements of perception. On the other hand, memory raises many difficult and very important problems which it is necessary to consider at the first possible moment. One reason for treating memory at this early stage is that it seems to be involved in the fact that images are recognized as copies of past sensible experience. In the preceding lecture, I alluded to Hume's principle that all our simple ideas in their first appearance are derived from simple impressions which are correspondent to them and which they exactly represent. Whether or not this principle is liable to exceptions, everyone would agree that it has a broad measure of truth though the word exactly might seem an overstatement, and it might seem more correct to say that ideas approximately represent impressions. Such modifications of Hume's principle, however, do not affect the problem which I wish to present for your consideration, namely, why do we believe that images are, sometimes or always, approximately or exactly, copies of sensations? What sort of evidence is there? And what sort of evidence is logically possible? The difficulty of this question arises through the fact that the sensation which an image is supposed to copy is in the past when the image exists, 
and can therefore only be known by memory, while, on the other hand, memory of past sensations seems only possible by means of present images. How then are we to find any way of comparing the present image and the past sensation? The problem is just as acute if we say that images differ from their prototypes as if we say that they resemble them. It is the very possibility of comparison that is hard to understand. We think we can know that they are alike or different, but we cannot bring them together in one experience and compare them. To deal with this problem, we must have a theory of memory. In this way, the whole status of images as copies is bound up with the analysis of memory. In investigating memory beliefs, there are certain points which must be borne in mind. In the first place, everything constituting a memory belief is happening now, not in that past time to which the belief is said to refer. It is not logically necessary to the existence of a memory belief that the event remembered should have occurred, or even that the past should have existed at all. There is no logical impossibility in the hypothesis that the world sprang into being five minutes ago, exactly as it then was, with a population that remembered a wholly unreal past. There is no logically necessary connection between events at different times. Therefore, nothing that is happening now or will happen in the future can disprove the hypothesis that the world began five minutes ago. Hence, the occurrences which are called knowledge of the past are logically independent of the past. They are wholly analyzable into present contents which might theoretically be just what they are, even if no past had existed. I'm not suggesting that the non-existence of the past should be entertained as a serious hypothesis. Like all skeptical hypotheses, it is logically tenable but uninteresting. All that I am doing is to use its logical tenability as a help in the analysis of what occurs when we remember. In the second place, images without beliefs are insufficient to constitute memory, and habits are still more insufficient. The behaviorist who attempts to make psychology a record of behavior has to trust his memory in making the record. Habit is a concept involving the occurrence of similar events at different times. If the behaviorist feels confident that there is such a phenomenon as habit, that can only be because he trusts his memory, when it assures him that there have been other times. And the same applies to images. If we are to know, as it is supposed we do, that images are copies, accurate or inaccurate, of past events, something more than the mere occurrence of images must go to constitute this knowledge for their mere occurrence by itself would not suggest any connection with anything that had happened before. Can we constitute memory out of images together with suitable beliefs? We may take it that memory images, when they occur in true memory, are a. known to be copies, b. sometimes known to be imperfect copies. How is it possible to know that a memory image is an imperfect copy? without having a more accurate copy by which to replace it. This would seem to suggest that we have a way of knowing the past which is independent of images, by means of which we can criticize image memories. But I do not think such an inference is warranted.
What results, formally, from our knowledge of the past through images of which we recognize the inaccuracy, is that such images must have two characteristics by which we can arrange them in two series, of which one corresponds to the more or less remote period in the past to which they refer, and the other to our greater or less confidence in their accuracy. We will take the second of these points first. Our confidence or lack of confidence in the accuracy of a memory image must, in fundamental cases, be based upon a characteristic of the image itself, since we cannot evoke the past bodily and compare it with the present image. It might be suggested that vagueness is the required characteristic, but I do not think this is the case. We sometimes have images that are by no means peculiarly vague, which yet we do not trust. For example, under the influence of fatigue, we may see a friend's face vividly and clearly, but horribly distorted. In such a case, we distrust our image in spite of its being unusually clear. I think the characteristic by which we distinguish the images we trust is the feeling of familiarity that accompanies them. Some images, like some sensations, feel very familiar, while others feel strange. Familiarity is a feeling capable of degrees. In an image of a well-known face, for example, some parts may feel more familiar than others. When this happens, we have more belief in the accuracy of the familiar parts than in that of the unfamiliar parts. I think it is by this means that we become critical of images, not by some imageless memory with which we compare them. I shall return to the consideration of familiarity shortly. I come now to the other characteristic which memory images must have in order to account for our knowledge of the past. They must have some characteristic which makes us regard them as referring to more or less remote portions of the past. That is to say, if we suppose that A is the event remembered, B the remembering, and T the interval of time between A and B, there must be some characteristic of B which is capable of degrees, and which, in accurately dated memories, varies as T varies. It may increase as T increases, or diminish as T increases. The question which of these occurs is not of any importance for the theoretic serviceability of the characteristic in question. In actual fact, there are doubtless various factors that concur in giving us the feeling of greater or less remoteness in some remembered event. There may be a specific feeling which could be called the feeling of pastness, especially where immediate memory is concerned. But apart from this, there are other marks. One of these is context. A recent memory has, usually, more context than a more distant one. When a remembered event has a remembered context, this may occur in two ways, either a by successive images in the same order as their prototypes, or b by remembering a whole process simultaneously, in the same way in which a present process may be apprehended, through acoluthic sensations which, by fading, acquire the mark of just pastness in an increasing degree as they fade, and are thus placed in a series while all sensibly present. It will be the context in this second sense, more specially, 
that will give us a sense of the nearness or remoteness of a remembered event. There is, of course, a difference between knowing the temporal relation of a remembered event to the present and knowing the time order of two remembered events. Very often, our knowledge of the temporal relation of a remembered event to the present is inferred from its temporal relations to other remembered events. It would seem that only rather recent events can be placed at all accurately by means of feelings giving their temporal relation to the present. But it is clear that such feelings must play an essential part in the process of dating remembered events. We may say, then, that images are regarded by us as more or less accurate copies of past occurrences because they come to us with two sorts of feelings. One, those that may be called feelings of familiarity. Two, those that may be collected together as feelings giving a sense of pastness. The first lead us to trust our memories, the second to assign places to them in the time order. We have now to analyze the memory belief, as opposed to the characteristics of images which led us to base memory beliefs upon them. If we had retained the subject, or act, in knowledge, the whole problem of memory would have been comparatively simple. We could then have said that remembering is a direct relation between the present act or subject and the past occurrence remembered. The act of remembering is present, though its object is past. But the rejection of the subject renders some more complicated theory necessary. Remembering has to be a present occurrence in some way resembling or related to what is remembered. And it is difficult to find any ground, except a pragmatic one, for supposing that memory is not sheer delusion, if, as seems to be the case, there is not, apart from memory, any way of ascertaining that there really was a past occurrence having the required relation to our present remembering. What, if we followed Menong's terminology, we would call the object in memory, i.e., the past event which we are said to be remembering, is unpleasantly remote from the content i.e., the present mental occurrence in remembering. There is an awkward gulf between the two, which raises difficulties for the theory of knowledge. But we must not falsify observation to avoid theoretical difficulties. For the present, therefore, let us forget these problems and try to discover what actually occurs in memory. Some points may be taken as fixed and such as any theory of memory must arrive at. In this case, as in most others, what may be taken as certain in advance is rather vague. The study of any topic is like the continued observation of an object which is approaching us along a road. What is certain to begin with is the quite vague knowledge that there is some object on the road. If you attempt to be less vague and to assert that the object is an elephant, or a man, or a mad dog, you run a risk of error. But the purpose of continued observation is to enable you to arrive at such more precise knowledge. In like manner, in the study of memory, the certainties with which you begin are very vague, and the more precise propositions at which you try to arrive are less certain than the hazy data from which you set out. Nevertheless, in spite of the risk of error, precision is the goal at which we must aim.
the first of our vague but indubitable data is that there is knowledge of the past we do not yet know with any precision what we mean by knowledge and we must admit that in any given instance our memory may be at fault nevertheless whatever a skeptic might urge in theory we cannot practically doubt that we got up this morning that we did various things yesterday that a great war has been taking place and so on how far our knowledge of the past is due to memory and how far to other sources is of course a matter to be investigated but there can be no doubt that memory forms an indispensable part of our knowledge of the past the second datum is that we certainly have more capacity for knowing the past than for knowing the future we know some things about the future for example what eclipses there will be but this knowledge is a matter of elaborate calculation and inference whereas some of our knowledge of the past comes to us without effort in the same sort of immediate way in which we acquire knowledge of occurrences in our present environment we might provisionally though perhaps not quite correctly define memory as that way of knowing about the past which has no analogue in our knowledge of the future such a definition would at least serve to mark the problem with which we are concerned though some expectations may deserve to rank with memory as regards immediacy a third point perhaps not quite so certain as our previous two is that the truth of memory cannot be wholly practical as pragmatists wish all truth to be it seems clear that some of the things i remember are trivial and without any visible importance for the future but that my memory is true or false in virtue of a past event not in virtue of any future consequences of my belief the definition of truth as the correspondence between beliefs and facts seems peculiarly evident in the case of memory as against not only the pragmatist definition but also the idealist definition by means of coherence these considerations however are taking us away from psychology to which we must now return it is important not to confuse the two forms of memory which bergson distinguishes in the second chapter of his matter and memory namely the sort that consists of habit and the sort that consists of independent recollection he gives the instance of learning a lesson by heart when i know it by heart i am said to remember it but this merely means that i have acquired certain habits on the other hand my recollection of say the second time i read the lesson while i was learning it is the recollection of a unique event which occurred only once the recollection of a unique event cannot so bergson contends be wholly constituted by habit and is in fact something radically different from the memory which is habit the recollection alone is true memory this distinction is vital to the understanding of memory but it is not so easy to carry out in practice as it is to draw in theory habit is a very intrusive feature of our mental life and is often present where at first sight it seems not to be there is for example a habit of remembering a unique event when we have once described the event the words we have used easily become habitual we may even have used words to describe it to ourselves while it was happening in that case 
the habit of these words may fulfill the function of bergson's true memory while in reality it is nothing but habit memory a gramophone by the help of suitable records might relate to us the incidents of its past and people are not so different from gramophones as they like to believe in spite however of a difficulty in distinguishing the two forms of memory in practice there can be no doubt that both forms exist i can set to work now to remember things i never remembered before such as what i had to eat for breakfast this morning and it can hardly be wholly habit that enables me to do this it is this sort of occurrence that constitutes the essence of memory until we have analyzed what happens in such a case as this we have not succeeded in understanding memory the sort of memory with which we are here concerned is the sort which is a form of knowledge whether knowledge itself is reducible to habit is a question to which i shall return in a later lecture for the present i am only anxious to point out that whatever the true analysis of knowledge may be knowledge of past occurrences is not proved by behavior which is due to past experience the fact that a man can recite a poem does not show that he remembers any previous occasion on which he has recited or read it similarly the performances of animals in getting out of cages or mazes to which they are accustomed do not prove that they remember having been in the same situation before arguments in favor of for example memory in plants are only arguments in favor of habit memory not of knowledge memory samuel butler's arguments in favor of the view that an animal remembers something of the lives of its ancestors are when examined only arguments in favor of habit memory simmons's two books mentioned in an earlier lecture do not touch knowledge memory at all closely they give laws according to which images of past occurrences come into our minds, but do not discuss our belief that these images refer to past occurrences, which is what constitutes knowledge memory. It is this that is of interest to theory of knowledge. I shall speak of it as true memory, to distinguish it from mere habit acquired through past experience. Before considering true memory, it will be well to consider two things which are on the way towards memory namely the feeling of familiarity and recognition we often feel that something in our sensible environment is familiar without having any definite recollection of previous occasions on which we have seen it we have this feeling normally in places where we have often been before at home or in well-known streets most people and animals find it essential to their happiness to spend a good deal of their time in familiar surroundings which are especially comforting when any danger threatens the feeling of familiarity has all sorts of degrees down to the stage where we dimly feel that we have seen a person before it is by no means always reliable almost everybody has at some time experienced the well-known illusion that all that is happening now happened before at some time there are occasions when familiarity does not attach itself to any definite object when there is merely a vague feeling that something is familiar this is illustrated by tirgenev's smoke where the hero is long puzzled by a haunting sense that something in his present is recalling something in his past and at last traces it to the smell of heliotrope 
whenever the sense of familiarity occurs without a definite object it leads us to search the environment until we are satisfied that we have found the appropriate object which leads us to the judgment this is familiar i think we may regard familiarity as a definite feeling capable of existing without an object but normally standing in a specific relation to some feature of the environment the relation being that which we express in words by saying that the feature in question is familiar the judgment that what is familiar has been experienced before is a product of reflection and is no part of the feeling of familiarity such as a horse may be supposed to have when he returns to his stable thus no knowledge as to the past is to be derived from the feeling of familiarity alone a further stage is recognition this may be taken in two senses the first when a thing not merely feels familiar but we know it is such and such we recognize our friend jones we know cats and dogs when we see them and so on here we have a definite influence of past experience but not necessarily any actual knowledge of the past when we see a cat we know it is a cat because of previous cats we have seen but we do not as a rule recollect at the moment any particular occasion when we have seen a cat recognition in this sense does not necessarily involve more than a habit of association the kind of object we are seeing at the moment is associated with the word cat or with an auditory image of purring or whatever other characteristic we may happen to recognize in the cat of the moment we are of course in fact able to judge when we recognize an object that we have seen it before but this judgment is something over and above recognition in this first sense and may very probably be impossible to animals that nevertheless have the experience of recognition in this first sense of the word there is however another sense of the word in which we mean by recognition not knowing the name of a thing or some other property of it but knowing that we have seen it before in this sense recognition does involve knowledge about the past this knowledge is memory in one sense though in another it is not it does not involve a definite memory of a definite past event but only the knowledge that something happening now is similar to something that happened before it differs from the sense of familiarity by being cognitive it is a belief or judgment which the sense of familiarity is not i do not wish to undertake the analysis of belief at present since it will be the subject of the twelfth lecture for the present i merely wish to emphasize the fact that recognition in our second sense consists in a belief which we may express approximately in the words this has existed before there are however several points in which such an account of recognition is inadequate to begin with it might seem at first sight more correct to define recognition as i have seen this before than as this has existed before we recognize a thing it may be urged as having been in our experience before whatever that may mean we do not recognize it as merely having been in the world before i am not sure that there is anything substantial in this point the definition of my experience is difficult 
Broadly speaking, it is everything that is connected with what I am experiencing now by certain links, of which the various forms of memory are among the most important. Thus, if I recognize a thing, the occasion of its previous existence in virtue of which I recognize it forms part of my experience by definition. Recognition will be one of the marks by which my experience is singled out from the rest of the world. Of course, the words, this has existed before, are a very inadequate translation of what actually happens when we form a judgment of recognition, but that is unavoidable. Words are framed to express a level of thought which is by no means primitive, and are quite incapable of expressing such an elementary occurrence as recognition. I shall return to what is virtually the same question, in connection with true memory which raises exactly similar problems. End of Lecture 9, Part 1 Memory Recording by David Jenkins